Good morning! Today is Sunday, the 6th day of August 2017. Danger is all around us. Even crossing the road can be dangerous. In 1896, a woman found out that the hard way. And you know, just because you have the desire to do something amazing doesn't mean you can do it. A filmmaker in the 21st century found out that the hard way. That's right, today we have two stories for the price of one on the 132nd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I hope everybody's doing well. I'm doing great, thanks for asking. It's been another odd week. We've had some internet problems and such, but I was still able to get a couple of stories written. Yep, two stories today. The first, about the death of Bridget Driscoll, I've had on my list for a while knowing full well that it wouldn't make a complete episode, and I was sort of waiting for another good story idea to pair with it. I never did find one, so I so I just paired it with another story I was thinking about doing. The two stories have nothing in common. The second story is about the film Food Fight. I first heard of Food Fight from the wonderful podcast We Hate Movies. In my story, I don't talk too much about the actual plot of the film, But if you want to hear all about it in a very comical way, listen to the We Hate Movies episode 110 from 2013. I'll have a link to it in today's show notes. You could watch it yourself, but seriously, don't do that to yourself. Hey, quickly, there's something I want to talk about before we get started. Did you hear about that private company called Moon Express? They unveiled their plans to build a robotic outpost on the south pole of the moon as early as 2020. That's like two and a half years away. They want to start mining the moon for all its riches. It's a very ambitious plan. You know, I I do realize that mining the moon could be a very good thing for humankind, but, but I can't help but think that I just wish they would leave the moon alone. The moon to me is an amazing piece of natural art that people have been staring at since, well, the beginning of the human race. I just don't want to see it changed. I don't want to lose those amazing craters, that face that we look up to at the night sky. Anyway, I've got a hot cup of coffee, and I'm ready to tell a couple of stories on a double feature episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff, so let's do it. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. I think the important thing to remember is that people on foot must be just as alert as people in cars, even with these safeguards to help us. Maybe even more so, Jack. Because sometimes the driver is careless. You two are hitting on every cylinder. 
Have you ever noticed how some people seem to expect too much protection from these safeguards? How do you mean? Well, one example is the crosswalk. Some people seem to think those white lines on the pavement are fences. Some drivers don't stop soon enough and get over the line. That's why you have to keep your eyes open whenever you're around traffic. Have you ever crossed a busy road with cars flying by from left and from the right, automobile after automobile whizzing by you, just a foot or two from your body? Did you ever think about just how much trust you are putting into every driver of every car, each one controlling a 4,000-pound machine, traveling at 40, 50, 60, or even 70 miles per hour? Is every driver of every car in full control? Or, Or is that man over there dozing off? Has that young dude been drinking? Is that lady putting on her lipstick? Is that teenager texting on his phone? Most, of course, are in complete control, but just what happens if one driver at the wrong time sneezes? Will it cause him to weave just enough to the right to... (laughs) The thing is, we put a lot of trust into other drivers, even though we know or should know just how dangerous traffic can be. According to the CDC, which is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in 2015, 5,376 pedestrians were killed in traffic crashes in the United States. And additionally, almost 129,000 pedestrians were treated in emergency departments for non-fatal crash-related injuries. People have been getting killed or hurt by automobiles for, well, as long as there's been automobiles. It goes way back, and did you ever want to know who was the first? Well, as far as history knows, the first person to meet such an unfortunate fate was Bridget Driscoll, and it happened just about 121 years ago, on the 17th of August, 1896, in England. Bridget was a 44-year-old mother who had been attending a fate put on by the Catholic League of the Cross at the Crystal Palace in London, Along with her was her 16-year-old daughter, May, and her friend, Elizabeth Murphy. The Crystal Palace was a cast-iron and plate-glass structure originally built in Hyde Park, London, to house the Great Exhibition of 1851. The Anglo-French Motor Carriage Company was there giving demonstration rides on their new automobile as part of a motoring exhibition. Arthur James Etzel of Upper Norwood, a worker for the Anglo-French Motor Carriage Company, was driving with either Alice Standings or Elaine Standings or both as passengers. This depending on which version of the story you read. Some have suggested that maybe he was paying a little bit too much attention to his lady passengers and not enough to his driving. As Mrs. Driscoll, her daughter, and friend crossed the grounds, The motor car came zigzagging towards them. Driscoll's daughter and friend stepped back, but Bridget seemed to stand her ground and used her umbrella to warn Edsel to stop. Apparently, Mrs. Driscoll didn't hear Edsel yell, Stand back! or the sound of his horn blowing. And although there was plenty of room for the car to go around her, it came right at her. Now, the average walking speed for a human being is 3.1 miles per hour. 
The car Edsel was driving had a maximum speed of 8 miles per hour, but had been limited deliberately to 4 miles per hour, and that's the speed he would later claim he was driving. His passenger, Alice Standing, alleged that he had modified the engine to allow the car to go faster. But another taxicab driver examined the car later and said it was incapable of exceeding 4.5 miles per hour because of the low-speed engine belt. So basically, the car was going barely faster than the average walking speed, or at worst, it might have been going less than three times the average walking speed. Probably the speed of a nice, brisk run. Yet somehow it struck Bridget Driscoll and drove right over her. Bridget, therefore, has the distinction of being the first pedestrian to be killed by a motor car. Now, with the speed of the car, she probably would have only received minor injuries if she hadn't gone right under the wheel. Edsel spent the night in jail. At the inquest, Edsel said that Mrs. Driscoll seemed bewildered and got in his way, and then the car knocked her down. It was reported that May Driscoll claimed that the driver did not seem to understand what he was doing and that he zigzagged towards them. Loris Ashmore, a domestic servant, gave evidence that the car went at a tremendous pace, like a fire engine, as fast as a good horse could gallop. Others testified that the car was going about four miles per hour. It took the jury six hours to decide the cause of death was an accident, and the coroner said, I trust this sort of nonsense will never happen again. Hmm. Bridget might have been the first pedestrian to be killed by a motor car, but she wasn't the first motor car fatality. That distinction goes to Mary Ward, a scientist from Ireland. Mary was an amateur author, artist, astronomer, and microscopist. She was one of those remarkable women that were determined to be a scientist in the days when women were not accepted into universities. She learned her craft any way she could, like writing other scientists, asking them questions on papers they had published, and when possible, meeting them. Through her own endeavors, she became a respected member of the scientific community and was the first woman ever to be placed on the Royal Astronomical Society's mailing list. Unfortunately, on August 31, 1869, when she was 42, Mary and her husband Henry were taking a ride on a steam-powered car. As the car made a sharp turn by a church, Mary, who was sitting on a stool, slipped off and fell to the ground. The wheel of the car drove over her head. A doctor who lived near the scene arrived within moments and found her cut, bruised, and bleeding from the ears. It was determined that she died instantly from a broken neck. The first person to be killed in America was 68-year-old realtor Henry H. Bliss, who died on September 14, 1899. A day earlier, he was getting off a streetcar at West 74th Street and Central Park West in New York City. After helping a lady friend, a Miss Lee, down off a trolley, an electric-powered taxicab driven by Arthur Smith struck him. Mrs. Lee became hysterical, and for good reason. The car crushed Henry's head and chest. He died the next morning. Arthur Smith was arrested and charged with manslaughter, 
but was acquitted on the grounds that he had no malice, nor was he negligent. On September 13, 1999, a plaque was dedicated at the site that he was killed, with his great-granddaughter in attendance. It reads, Here at West 74th Street and Central Park West, Henry H. Bliss dismounted from a streetcar and was struck and knocked unconscious by an automobile on the evening of September 13, 1899. When Mr. Bliss, a New York real estate man, died the next morning from his injuries, he became the first recorded motor vehicle fatality in the Western Hemisphere. This sign was erected to remember Mr. Bliss on the centennial of his untimely death and to promote safety on our streets and highways. He's dynamic. Oh boy. He's dramatic. <laughs> He's the big dog. Dex Detective is back in the house. That always runs to the rescue. I still got it. Charlie Sheen is Dex. When in doubt, just do the right thing. With Hillary Duff. Listen, tough guy. Doesn't mean that I couldn't kick your butt. Eva Longoria. I've got a hot case for you. Wayne Brady. I'm your best friend, Daredevil Dan. And Christopher Lloyd. Somebody ordered I recall. Food fight. This makes 500 cases you've solved. What's your secret? The secret's inside. In the year 2012, a film called Food Fight was released in the theaters. It was a 3D animated film in which marketing icons such as Charlie Tuna and Mrs. Butterworth come alive at night after the supermarket called Marketropolis closes. It's a similar idea to that of Toy Story. The film starred such voices as Charlie Sheen, Wayne Brady, Hilary Duff, Eva Longoria, Larry Miller, and Christopher Lloyd. It is estimated that the feature cost between $45 and $65 million to produce and took in a whopping $72,706 at the box office. It was a failure, both financially and artistically. What makes the story interesting was that it began production back around 1999, and for various reasons it wasn't completed for almost 12 years. It begins with Larry Kazanoff and his great dream. Larry was a film producer with some very successful films under his belt. He had been a producer or executive producer on such films as True Lies, Strange Days, and many more. The Mortal Kombat films are what he is really known for. When, in 1995, a small, unknown studio named Pixar released a film called Toy Story, the animated film business quickly changed and Pixar became a major animation studio. Now, I don't know how much Toy Story influenced Larry, but by 1999, his company, Threshold Entertainment, began creating a similar idea in which brand mascots come to life in a supermarket after closing time. Together with one of his employees, Joshua Wexler, they began working on a story. Larry Kazanoff said in an interview in 2002, We've got the movie, we've got the property, the place, the equipment, the talent, we're there. Do we believe our next movie, Food Fight, is going to be a huge hit? Of course we do. We think it's great. We've got an amazing response to it. I've told people all over the world and we're getting a uniform reaction to it. 
We're betting a ton that this is going to be a great movie. We're risking more on this movie than any other venture I've ever been involved in in my life. Larry's Threshold Entertainment teamed up with IBM to get the computer power they needed to make this feature. An article in the USA Today in 2003 said, IBM and Threshold plan to challenge Pixar Animation Studios, creator of Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo in Toy Story. Pixar, run by Apple Computer's CEO Steve Jobs, has reigned as the undisputed king of computer-generated films. If successful, the IBM Threshold partnership could change the way CG films are created, allowing studios to churn out more high-quality CG movies at little or half the cost. Larry wasn't an experienced director and never worked in animation before, yet he had the idea that he could create and direct this film. He thought it might lead to Threshold Entertainment being the next-generation Pixar, with Food Fight web episodes, storybooks, plush toys, and hopefully a live stage show, Food Fight on Ice. The idea was perfect for merchandising tie-ins, and he spent almost two years negotiating for more than 80 food industry characters to appear in his movie. Nothing at Threshold has ever been deemed so crucial to the company's success. For us, Mr. Kasanoff told the press, this is Casablanca. In fact, the film has plenty of references to Casablanca in the story, and you know, that's just what a young child wants. References to a 70-year-old film. Speaking of the plot of Food Fight, I'm not really going to go into that much. It's on Amazon Prime if you're interested. And right away there was some controversy about making this film for children while using well-known marketing icons. Some saw this idea as one long commercial. This is the next step in brassiness, said Gary Ruskin, executive director of Commercial Alert, a nonprofit organization dedicated to protect children and communities from commercialization. This is part of an ever-increasing effort to bombard children with commercial advertising. The budget for the film was estimated at $50 million, and Larry was able to raise $25 million to begin production, figuring that he would get the rest of his money from foreign pre-sales and loans against those sales. The idea was to make a 3D film in the style of the old Looney Tunes shorts, with the exaggerated use of squash and stretch. As for Larry's directing style, those who worked on the movie said he would give animators directions like more awesome, or 30% better. Despite this, the film was scheduled for a Christmas 2003 theatrical release, and a trailer was produced for that purpose. The original trailer can be found on YouTube, and interestingly, Chester Cheetah is clearly seen as a character, but as it turns out, he wouldn't make it into the final film. This was because late into production, something unusual happened. In late 2002 or early 2003, Kasanoff reported that hard drives containing the unfinished film had been stolen in what he called an act of industrial espionage. That's right, the drives containing all the completed animation as well as everything else was gone. Apparently, Larry didn't bother to back things up. There has been a lot of suspicions over this theft, but to this day, no one knows for sure. Production began again from scratch in 2004. This time, and I can only guess it was to save money, 
the exaggerated motions of the first attempt were given up for motion capture. And at this time, to get the new animation to sync with the already recorded dialogue, the model actors had to stare straight ahead and keep still. This resulted in eyes appearing vacant or looking in the wrong direction. Kenneth Waitrack, and I hope I pronounced his last name right, who was a layout artist on the project, said in a New York Times article in 2013, There's a very conscious exaggeration in animation that makes it feel alive, and mocap didn't work like that. As the movie production went on, it became obvious that there were many aspects of the story and dialogue that seemed to be geared more for an adult audience with sexy characters and sexual innuendos totally inappropriate for a young audience. This made some of the companies that licensed their characters nervous. Many appeared to pull out. That might be why Chester Cheetah, as well as the Lipton Tea Man, the Brawny Paper Towel Man, the Coca-Cola Polar Bears, Uncle Ben, Count Chocula, and others didn't make the final film. The oddest part of the story was an unsettling amount of Nazi imagery. Briefly, the film is about a grocery store that becomes a huge city after the humans leave, and how a new character, Lady X, the seductive Bran X detergent icon, arrives. And as far as I can tell, the film turns into a brand name versus generic brands battle, with name brands being the good guys and generic brands being evil. Because the producers had celebrity voices and brand tie-ins, they were able to get a new distribution deal with Lionsgate and an extra $20 million to complete the film. This fell apart when 2005 and 2006 release dates passed without a final film. Work continued on the film, or didn't, for the next five years, until 2011, when a small ad with the headline, Notice of Public Sale appeared in an issue of The Hollywood Reporter. The film's debitors had intervened and were putting up Food Fight's rights for auction. Starting price, $2.5 million. Eventually, Story Arc investors invoked a clause in their contract that allowed the Fireman's Fund Insurance Company, which had insured Food Fight, to complete and release the film as inexpensively and as quickly as possible. The film was already ruined, said Ken Bailey, an animator during the project's last stages. They were just trying to salvage what they could. Finally, in 2012, what they had was released. And yes, in my opinion, it's just as bad as people say it is. And if people think I don't suffer for a coffee with Jeff, listen. I watched this catastrophe from beginning to end, and that's 87 minutes of my life I will never get back. Everything about this film, from the plot to the animation style to the voice acting, is just horrendous. The film looks like a video game from the 1980s. The AV Club website had this to say about the film. It's tempting to say that something is off from the very start here, but it would be more accurate to argue that everything is off. The grotesque ugliness of the animation alone would be a deal-breaker, even if the film weren't also glaringly inappropriate in its sexuality, nightmare-inducing in its animation, 
and filled with Nazi overtones and iconography, even more egregiously unfit for children than the script's wall-to-wall gauntlet of crude double entendres and weird intimation of interspecies sex. The AV Club additionally stated that Food Fight doesn't just represent one of entertainment's most appalling lapses of taste, restraint, and judgment in recent memory. It's one of those fall of civilization moments. A New York Times article condemned the film, saying, The animation appears unfinished, and the plot is impenetrable and even offensive. So you might ask, what's Lawrence Kazimoff up to today? Get ready for this. It appears he is getting ready to turn the game Tetris into not just one live-action film, but a trilogy of films. Yes, the story he has in mind for the game Tetris is so big, it'll take three films to tell it. Let's just hope Mr. Kazanoff knows what he's doing. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad side. A few things I want to wrap up before I go. I want to point out that much of the story on Food Fight was from a New York Times article from 2013 called The Rise and Fall of the Computer Animated Food Fight by Jake Rosen. It seems that every other place I went to for information just referred back to this article, so that's what I used. I'll have a link to it on today's show notes. It has a lot more detail than I I talked about here. And like I said, Food Fight is available on Amazon Prime. You have to search for it. It won't come up in your normal feed there, but uh, trust me, don't do it to yourself. You know, when I first thought about doing this film as as a show... I thought about pairing it up with the making of The Beast of Yucca Flats from 1961. The problem was I just couldn't find enough information out there to to make a story. But I just wanted to stress that if you think Ed Wood is the worst director of all time, watch a Coleman Francis film like The Beast of Yucca Flats. Ed Wood is a master compared to Coleman Francis. And before I go, I just wanted to say that if you have a story idea or something you want to know more about, please feel free to send me an email at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. And now the ending credits. There is a web address, a special web address that you can type into any web browser. It will take you to a page, an important page, the Psycon Patreon page. This page could be your way of supporting a great podcasting network. Just go to psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You know, if you want a daily dose of geek news Monday through Friday... You can find that at PsyCon. It's called Geek Days. And, well, Coffee with Jeff listeners might hear a familiar voice for about a minute or so, but mostly you'll hear the soothing vocals of Brecky as he tells you what's new in the geek world. You can find Geek Days and other shows over at PsyCon.fm. You know you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason you want to complain or just say hi, go ahead. I'll answer your email. 
You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. We had two new likes last week, and that's huge for us. Your story ideas are always welcome, usually needed, and you can tell me about them at any of those places. If you want to support the show but you don't have the money, and believe me, I understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a couple of stars or something. Those really help. It's been a while since we've got a review. And remember, links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme song. And to everybody who listens to the show, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You guys have a special place in my heart. I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. 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 Coffee with Jeff.